Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, it's time for Charitable Georgia. Brought to you by Bees Charitable Pursuits and Resources. We put the fun in fundraising. For more information, go to beescharitablepursuits.com. That's B-E-E-S charitablepursuits.com. Now, here's your host, Brian Pruitt. Good, fabulous Friday morning. We've got three more fabulous folks in the studio today, and it's too bad we weren't on earlier because there were some wild stories going on, and it's too bad we don't have like an eight-hour show because some really cool stuff talked about. But um, as you know, this is Charitable Georgia. It's positive things happening in the community, and I've got three three guys here that's going to share their stories on not only what they do in the community but about chasing their dreams and um, we're going to start first off with John Clunan from Audacity Marketing. So, John, thanks for being here this morning. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brian. So, um, you have you you shared before we started quite a few things you've done, but tell us a little bit about Audacity Marketing and why you're in the marketing world. So, I'm actually in the marketing world. Accidentally, um, I was hired in. I was hired as a, a proposal writer back in like 1997, and I just continually grew into that role. Um, and then through 25 years in corporate and a couple agencies. And then back in 2020, I decided that, you know, I was going to start another marketing agency and this is kind of my last act, if you will. So, well, you, you, uh, you like helping others. So what does audacity marketing do? Can you share what, what you do? I mean, at the, at the core, we grow people's businesses. You know, we provide, we're a full service marketing agency providing, both traditional and digital marketing across the spectrum to really all kinds of companies. Do you do um, like from social media as well as oh, we uh, do, websites and we do social media, we do websites, we do traditional marketing. So like we'll do direct mail, we'll do EDDM. Uh, we also do, um, Oh goodness. We'll do uh, social advertising. We'll manage your social media. I mean, we truly are a full service agency. Um, in fact, one product that we offer is what is what I call a fractional marketing department, which means that your company, if you don't have a marketing department, you just pay us a flat fee per month and we do your marketing. Awesome. So do you work with just people in Cherokee County or do you do all over Metro Atlanta? Oh no, we're international actually. Okay. We have clients, uh, as we have clients in the UK, um, uh, California, all over the country. So awesome. Well, you said you got this in an, uh, accidentally. So share a little bit of your story, what you were doing before, and we'll get to why I asked you here anyway, because it's all pretty cool. It leads up to what, what we're talking about. Oh God. What was I doing before? Um, what were you doing before? I guess that's what well, I was going to say, um, you know, I think I said before, I have a resume that reads like the Tibetan book of the dead. Um, immediately before that job, I was actually doing hotel maintenance for a local Marriott, uh, for a local Marriott. And, uh, but I have done, um, you know, I've done theater, I've done, uh, automotive detailing, I've done inline skating. <laughs> I mean, you name it, it's probably on there. Like if I actually wrote out my resume, it'd probably be 25 pages long. Wow. So we're talking about uh, following your dreams. You are a professional motorcycle racer. You've, you retired and then came back. So I'm not a professional. Um, let's, I need to be a hundred percent clear. This is an amateur sport, um, at this level. Um, I have done it at that higher level, but, um, but now, but these days it's club racing. So, 
Well, share, share about that. Share their story. Why did you decide you wanted to come back and, and do it? I mean, that's obviously all three of these guys that I'm going to talk to, Stone, have extreme sports. And if I did any of them, I either wind up in the hospital or dead. So uh, just why have you decided, especially because what you do on the motorcycles, you are the one that leans all the way down and feels like you're about to slide out from underneath it. So, yeah, well, if you're not leaning the bike, you're not turning. Right. <laughs> um, so I, I got into this back in the early nineties. Um, I've always raced or ridden or done track days. And I did it until, um, I did it like I did it steadily through until about 2008. Um, and then at right around that time, I had a really bad divorce. Um, uh, which left me kind of financially unable to do it because it's not a cheap sport. Um, and then um, right about the time I was recovered from that and was thinking that I was going to have the money to do that, I got cancer. Um, so that kind of took me out for a little while. Um, so flash forward to um, to 2020 and, and uh, I had actually just started this company. I'm like, I want to go racing again. And it was, I turned 50. And so this is like coming back to racing was my 50th birthday gift to myself. Wow, that's cool. So you're you're also an overcomer, obviously, with the cancer as well, and and going through your your personal stuff. But um, take me through how you train because there's obviously you got to do some training and and being able to handle that bike, and especially on those turns. Because literally, when I watch those and I see how far down you are, it just feels like you're on the ground. Oh yeah, you're on the ground. I mean, you know, if your lean angles, you know, it's really funny because you, the way you're uh, balance works is you feel really weird until you hit 45 degrees. And then when you get below 45 degrees, you feel great. Um, it's a very, very strange sensation. Um, but you know, training is, um, well for the year prior to starting, I actually built a motorcycle and just spent a year just doing practice days, just doing what they call track days. Um, just to get used to being back out there on the racetrack again. Um, but I'm also in the gym, uh, four to four to five days a week. Um, you know, I lift a lot. Um, I mean, that's almost out of habit as much as anything. Um, I'm also trying to lose a few pounds because I'm racing a small bike. I'm racing a 300. Um, and they say that 10 pounds is one horsepower and every, I need every horsepower <laughs> I can get. So, so, um, share with somebody, obviously, Again, you, you did this, and even though it's not pro, it's the amateur mm -hmm. style, you decided to come back and do it, and you're still following your dreams. As I, I saw something that says the old man following dreams. Yeah, yeah. Well, as you go on the FIWAP Racing website, you'll see yeah an old man on a small bike following his dreams. And this is just um, – I can't not do this anymore. <laughs> it's just one of those um, – I, I the first race back um, – I came off the racetrack. We came across the finish line and I started giggling like a schoolgirl, um, And I couldn't stop laughing all the way back to the paddock. I was just, I, I hadn't had that much fun. I didn't remember how much fun it was and I hadn't had that much fun in years. And then I was just, you know, all of a sudden I'm hooked again. Right. Um, and so I roast, I raced a full season last year, had some good success. Um, and here we are again. So what is a full season? Um, full season is, well, last year it was February to November. We, uh, first race was last weekend in February. Last race was the weekend before Thanksgiving. Uh, this year we end a little earlier. We end in October, but, and is it just the Southeast? Yeah, I'm, I'm racing. Oh, I'm actually racing two regions. I'm racing Southeast region. Um, 
And then um, I'm actually racing this year. I'm going to actually try to win the Atlantic Coastal Championship as well, um, awesome. which is only one additional race. So, Are there opportunities for uh, people who want to get involved? And Look, there's all kinds of levels of sports marketing, so I'm assuming people can help sponsor you and be a part of that. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, we have, um, you know, I've been soliciting sponsors, you know, well, I mean, I did last year. Um, Cherokee Business Radio X is a sponsor. Thank you much, very much, Stone. Um, and, um, you know, and because of what I do for a living, I offer a very different sponsorship experience. You get social media value. You get um, you get visibility. Um, you know, so rather than just a sticker on the side of the motorcycle, you know, there's social mentions, there's T-shirt ads, there's all kinds of stuff. Um, so it's a different it's a different experience, and it's not as expensive as people think. Yeah, that's what I, I think. When people hear sports <coughs> marketing, they're like, well, I can't be on a NASCAR. I can't afford to be on the Braves Stadium. But mm -hmm. there's all kinds of levels that you yeah. can be a part of. We talked that you we already mentioned that you like helping people, obviously, with your marketing. But you, you're you in the process of looking at starting a nonprofit as well. Can you share about that? Yeah. So um, when I started Audacity, um, Audacity has a focus on being diverse, um, like in, are internally diverse. And then when we – as we started to have some success and the company grew, I realized that a lot, there are a lot of um, diversity owned businesses or people who are underserved typically who just don't have the opportunity or the connections that I do as an old white guy, basically. <laughs> um, so we're creating an incubator to serve the underserved. Um, so ethnically diverse women, um, uh, people who have been out of prison, um, uh, addicts. And actually, if you think you are in an underserved population, we encourage you to apply uh, because we just take it on a case by case basis. How can people find it <laughs> and apply for that? Um, well, as soon as it launches, <laughs> um, because we are in the midst of finishing up the paperwork for the 501c3 and building the website, uh, we're anticipating like a end of year launch. Okay. Um, but as soon as that, uh, you'll just go to uh, breakoutbyaudacity.com and, and you will be there. All right. Well, can you share a little bit of, if somebody is listening to you and, and they'll hear these other stories, but if somebody's listening to you and they feel like they want to pursue their dream because they either had the dream and stopped doing it or whatever, but just tell somebody or give somebody advice about it's not, obviously it's never too late to pursue a dream, but just so if they want to pursue a dream, Oh yeah. I, you know, I think that the, the really, and I hate to be obvious, but the short version is go do it. Um, you know, figure out what it's going to take to do it and go do it. And one of the, you know, like for me, one of the big things was just, um, this, this is not a cheap sport. You know, you have to have a motorcycle and the motorcycle actually at some level is the cheap thing. Um, you know, and, but I, you know, so I figured out, you know, I sat down, I made a plan. I'm like, okay, how can I finance this? Okay. Sponsorship. Great. Okay. So we built the sponsorship program. Okay. What, um, you know, what do I need to do to be ready so that I don't, you know, harm myself? Okay. I need to practice. Okay. So I'm going to sign up for track days for a year to practice. And then I'm going to get back in the gym with a specific program around motorcycling. But the real thing is just figure out what you need to do to make the next step and make that step. Um, you know, and it just take it one step at a time until you're there. Um, you know, and then the next thing, you know, two years later, you know, I'm, I'm going after two regional championships. <laughs> so, 
if somebody wanted to come watch you race, is there somewhere in Metro Atlanta they can see you? Yeah, sure. We're racing at Road Atlanta twice this year, once in June and I think once in August. Uh, if you go to wira.com and look at the schedule, it'll show you all the places we race. Also, if you're here on the west side of, of the state, um, there's a small track in Oxford, Alabama, Talladega, um, which is a great place to go watch racing. Um, it's because you can pretty much see the whole track from the grandstands. But any place, like any anywhere on the Wira schedule, because we race in Georgia three times, well, we race in Georgia at three, tra- uh, two tracks, um, uh, Roebling Road Raceway down near Savannah as well. Um, but any of those places and cl- watching racing as a spectator at the club level is way better than at the pro level because you have full access to the paddock, right? You walk in, like if you see a racer come across the, the finish line, and you want to know what they did, go talk to them. Um, and almost all, and well, all of us are pretty much like you walk into my paddock and go, Hey, that was cool. How did that happen? You know, we're, we'll talk to you all day. So, so if somebody doesn't know the difference and you just shared a little <laughs> bit of the difference, but what's the difference between professional and club money? Uh, <laughs> 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 um, no, I mean, this, so professional racing in, in the United States is all sanctioned by, uh, Moto America. Um, and those guys are paid athletes, um, and they are paid to be there. They have different seasons. They have different, you know, there's not really a regional championship. They have a lot of different um, club racing is, you know, most of us are paying our own way. Um, you know, we're not getting paid to do this. We're doing it because we love it. Um, and I, I kind of like it better from a spectator perspective, just because you really do get that. Um, you get to talk to the athletes you get to. And, there's some really talented people there. And there are some guys who race at the club level who do both, right? You'll, you'll find some of the, like, if you want to meet some of the pro racers, come to a club race. They're there too. So Awesome. Well, if somebody wants to get a hold of you to talk about um, sponsorship or if they want to talk to you about your services of audacity, what's the best way somebody can get a hold of you? Sure. Uh, easiest thing um, for sponsorship, go to fiwopracing.com, F-I-W-O-P, and no, I won't tell you what it means. Um, it's not obscene. Just be aware of that. <laughs> um, go to fiwopracing.com and click support the dream, um, and you can and you can directly, you can either directly donate right there, or you can just reach out to me through the contact form. Uh, if you're interested in marketing services, uh, john at audacity.marketing. Awesome. Well, John, thanks for being here this morning again and sharing your story a little bit. And, and do you mind sticking around and listening to these next two stories? Oh, no, I want to. This is going to be great. Awesome. Well, we are moving over to Mr. Bill Borden. Bill is probably the, the um, non-official governor for Georgia. Everybody knows Bill. Please, Brian. Great to be here. Thank you. <laughs> um, so Bill uh, owns High Caliber Realty, and he's like John, done some things. Probably, again, what has he done? But uh, first of all, share about High Caliber Realty, and then we'll get into the other stuff. Okay. Well, High Caliber Realty actually started in 1939. And uh, in 1939, it was known as Bowling Green Realty Company up in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Uh, my mom purchased it in 1962. And then uh, after my father passed away, I purchased it from her in 1980 uh, after I was already living in Georgia and uh, was working with uh, Johnny Isaacson at North and Ed Nutting at Northside Commercial Division. And I was a young kid having a blast selling commercial real estate, enjoying life. And uh, over the years, we've ended up getting the high caliber trademark in the um, brokerage industry for the entire nation. Uh, we have offices and work in seven states, 
uh, with the main two offices, one in Anchorage, Alaska, which will become evident why it's there. <laughs> and the other one, of course, uh, in Atlanta here uh, in Kennesaw, Georgia. So uh, we, um, we have a take a little bit different approach. Uh, it all stems from after my dad passed away and I was actually the youngest broker in the Commonwealth in Kentucky. I walked back into the office and there was a bunch of old people in there to a couple of weeks after the funeral. And they, uh, they were probably a lot younger than I am right now, but they said, how do we keep it going? What do we need to do? And, uh, we started working as a team, as a, as a family with the whole company. So the whole company's watching out for all the clients and, uh, that is developed into, not just commercial, not just residential, but to actually take businesses and people and help them with their financial needs so that we're working on portfolios of, of real estate and working very closely with financial advisors and working on having portfolios performing somewhere between 10 and 25% per year uh, on, for profits for their housing and commercial needs. Well, you just mentioned helping businesses as well. And I know you, you have a passion for that as well, because I believe there's 13 business associations in Cobb County. And at one point you've probably been president of all of them, a president or director of all of yeah. them, yeah, as well as the Cobb, uh, Cobb chamber. I was a regional uh, chairman for one for them for a year as well. So um, share a little bit about if people don't know what a business association is or does, mm -hmm. can you share a little bit about those? Sure. Business association is uh, is a great tool for getting into the community and learning more about what other people do. Um, I always refer to it, the old adage of net weaving. A chamber of commerce, large corporations, they're promoting large geographical regions, Cobb County. They're promoting large geographical regions for large companies trying to get people to move in. And they have their place and they have their purpose. Uh, Cherokee Chamber, Cobb Chamber, Bartow Chamber, they have their purposes. But the smaller business associations are much better for uh, medium, small to medium-sized businesses that are actually looking for other businesses and, and B2B and uh, B2C consumers. What we do with those business associations, when you go to those, you shouldn't be looking for business. When you walk into one of those business associations as a small business, you should be looking to hear what everybody else does. You need to be the go-to person. You need to know, have in your pocket who the plumber is, who the electrician is, who the marketing agency is. Uh, you need to know, you know, who the who the radio show producer is, like Stone. You need to know who somebody calls and says, "Bill, do you know of a?" And over the years, you'll become the go-to person. You'll become the person that when somebody needs a criminal defense attorney, or when somebody, no, you don't need a criminal defense attorney. You need a divorce attorney. You know, those type of things. And uh, you will learn what all those other businesses do. And by in that return, you will get business because people will remember that, in my case, I sell real estate. It's also important to understand what you were just talking about. You don't go really to want to sell anything off. I mean, it's, it's the relationship building. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I was at a business association last week and uh, covering for one of our guys. And I was one of five real estate uh, agents. I was the only broker in the room. And I watched every one of those people say, if you want to buy or sell a house. Well, the thing is, if a real estate agent buys or sells a house, they are unemployed right after that closing. In my case, we work with families time and time again. I've been doing it 44 years. I've been doing it long enough now that I'm actually selling grandkids their houses that I sold their grandparents' houses for them. 
And you develop that relationship. You're never unemployed. You enjoy what you're doing. Uh, yeah, I've been trying to get out of the real estate business for 44 years. You know, it's uh, <clears throat> I was raised in it uh, on a farm. Uh, you know, mom had it. Dad, dad was in it before he passed away, and I've been trying to get out of it. But of course, you know, I wake up on my 18th birthday, and dad says, you're going to get your real estate license on my 19th birthday after being out rather late the night before. He says, get up. You're going to go take your broker's test. And, uh, you know, hindsight 2020 he made a very good choice but uh you know, i still maintain all my licensing I, I tried to get out of it i moved over into appraisal i'm still a certified general appraiser i moved over into the mortgage company we had the 20th largest mortgage company in the state back in 2003 four um had the law office where we were doing the real estate closings never know how know how to what the surveyors do but never licensed for that uh, so basically God, me trying to get out of it, God's been showing me all the different aspects of it. So I know what's going to go wrong before it goes wrong and we can make our transactions very smooth at high caliber. So somebody might be listening and, and wondering, um, what's the difference between an appraiser and an inspector? Well, an inspector is not actually licensed in the state of Georgia. They have a business license. They have liability insurance. But interestingly enough, an inspector in the state of Georgia that's inspecting it, they are only liable for what they charged you if they missed something. So the house could fall down the next day, and they could write you a check back for their three or $400. An appraiser, on the other hand, uh, is somebody that is coming up with value. Uh, three approaches to value, income, market, and cost approach. And those appraisers are looking at the value, but they're actually doing that for a bank or a mortgage company that is trying to come up with a value uh, basically to second-guess the buyer and the seller. And appraisers use historic data, meaning stuff that's sold already, historic, meaning old, to extrapolate. Now, you know, I'm glass houses here. I'm throwing mm -hmm. stones. To extrapolate. If you look that up in Webster, it's a scientific guess to form an opinion. And we know everybody's got one of those, just like. Yep. So <laughs> they form an opinion based on his old data with some wild guess. And they tell the bank, yeah, we think this is what it's worth. While, in fact, the true definition of market value is what a ready, willing, and able seller was willing to take and a ready, willing, and able buyer is willing to buy without undue influence. To me, that's the value. So if you've got a buyer and a seller willing to do it, then it's up to the appraiser for, to prove that value. Uh, taking it one step further, I do a lot of uh, charity auctions. I was a, a auctioneer, livestock auctioneer, and real estate auctioneer for many years. Still maintain that licensing. And to me, that's the ultimate, you know, put a whole bunch of people in one room and let them bid, and that's going to give your true market value. So that's the difference between an appraiser and, and an inspector. Two different jobs, neither of which hold much water with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you beat me because I was going to bring up your auctioneer stuff, so thanks for talking about it already. Yeah. Um, you also have a story of following your dreams. Now, you've talked about before that you were also a, a – motorcycle racer at one point i was you've been yeah. in the rodeo business for a while I was but then the the really cool thing that i've found out about you and this is when i was working for a little sports marketing company that you uh not only raced but finished the iditarod that is correct so if somebody doesn't know what that is share what that is okay well the iditarod is uh actually based if they've probably heard balto uh the dog balto and balto and statue in central park 
1925 serum run to uh, to Nome, Alaska, to take care of all the kids. So it, it was all based in children at the time to take medicine to them. Uh, back then, they used uh, several relay dog teams. I believe it was 17 relay dog teams to run from Nanana to Nome because the ships couldn't get to the port and the uh, two airplanes they had in Alaska back in 1925 were not flying at that time. So uh, back in 1968, uh, the state of Alaska, Seward's Follies, uh, 100th anniversary, they decided that they would have a dog race to support it. It actually became what it is today in 1973. Uh, the ceremonial distance is 1,000 miles. It runs from Anchorage to Nome. Uh, the, since it's over 1,000 miles, they call it 1,049 for the 49th state. Each year, the actual race distance changes a little depending on how the river, rivers freeze and how the depth of the snow and stuff. Uh, the particular race I ran was 1,151 miles, one of the longer versions of it. Uh, there was one that was 1,161. Of course, back then they didn't have GPS and uh, they didn't know how long it was. Back when I ran it, you weren't allowed to use GPS. You weren't allowed to use compasses. Uh, you started in Anchorage. You could use a compass. I take that back. But the compass really didn't do you any good because when you start in Anchorage and you go to Nome, from the pilots out there, you'll realize that the standard magnetic north deviation is 17% between Anchorage and Nome. So you really got to know where you're at to be able to determine where you're at on a compass. So it goes right back to it is the ultimate pit of man versus nature. And you're using uh, dog power, which is pound for pound. They're the strongest pulling animal on earth. Uh, each dog's capable of pulling five to 1,500 pounds apiece. They're pushing that harness. You hook, in my day, 16 to a steel cable tied to a 20-pound sled, and you're, the brake's only a suggestion at that point. Mm. Um, when, we, when I actually ran it, it uh, I became the 540th person in the world to finish it. There's now about 820 of us. Of course, some of those have passed away in the course of the 30-plus, 40-plus years, 50-plus years that's done it. The um, the actual race itself, to me, is 90% mental. Uh, interesting story. How I got into it was phenomenal in that it had to do with real estate and my wife and I's traveling. My wife and I have been together over 30 years, married 30 years this year. And all these wild hairs, she's like, okay, honey. And she's very, very supportive with it. So, you know, Brenda's my treasure there. But as far as... When we were traveling, we were sitting in the law office many years ago. I think it was 97, and she walked in, and back then a radio show that Clark Howard had called Friday Flyer before Internet bookings. Hey, there's a trip to Alaska for $197. Want to go? Sure, let's go. We're driving down the road. They're on the city limit signs, home of the Iditarod. Like, got to see one of these dogs. Got to see one. You know, to me, wide world of sports and the Iditarod, that growing up watching these dogs, it was phenomenal. Went out to the headquarters, wasn't a dog to be found. Lady told us, other ladies doing a tour. So we're doing a tour, and the lady had finished the Iditarod seven times. And lo and behold, she said, uh, what are you doing in Atlanta? I said, well, we've got a real estate sales company. We've got a mortgage company and several different things. Mortgage company? 
I'm a single entrepreneurial 38-year-old female, and I've built this kennel on my credit cards, and none of these banks will give me a loan. Well, back then, it was easy to get her a loan, so I got her a loan. Again, unknowing that the seven banks in Alaska had complete control of it, and there were no mortgage lenders in Alaska at the time. So we ended up getting her a loan and making the front page of the paper and becoming the first mortgage lender to do a loan in Alaska. Uh, went back for the next year's race and sat down next to these two old guys at the banquet. My wife says, you need to meet these guys. So I go over and I meet them. I didn't know who they were. How, how are you doing? You know, really neat race you guys have got here. I'd love to bring my Boy Scout troop up to see it. One of the old guys says, well, why don't you just run it? They can be your dog handlers. Well, I was 38 years old at the time. I had finished law school. You know, we had all the different practices. We had the appraisal. We had the real estate sales and mortgages. And I'm like, no, I can't do that. I don't have time to do that. <clears throat> and then one thing led to another. And they, one of them said, well, I finished it when I was 72. And the other one goes, well, yeah, I ran it the last time when I was 62. I'm thinking, God, if these two old guys can do this, I can do it. <laughs> so I started telling everybody I was going to do it. It was like God was saying, you need to go run this race. It has something to do with the kids. Go run the race. So I, three years of my life, basically quit work, devoted everything I could do to running the race, uh, spending all my money and everything to get into this race, uh, found out later during training that these two guys were actually, one of them was Colonel Norman Vaughn, Admiral Byrd's dog handler in the Antarctica expedition. Wow. It has a mountain named after him in Antarctica. So, of course, he could run it when he was 72. <laughs> and then the other one was Joe Reddington Sr., the founder of the modern-day Iditarod, who had taken a dog team <laughs> to the top of Mount McKinley Denali. I'm like, okay. So I've stuck my foot in it there. But the interesting thing was when I got to Nome, after 14 days on the trail and finished the race, the mayor of Nome walked up to me and said, congratulations, you're the 540th person to finish. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, you know, I've been on the trail for two weeks, and yeah, I'm sleep-deprived, but there wasn't that many people in the race. He says, what are you talking about? And Leo Rasmussen was his name. He goes, you're the 540th person ever to finish the race. Well, no wonder it was so hard. You know, I'm thinking, wow, because during that time I had broke, I had crashed three sleds, cracked a kneecap, broke a rib, lost 38 pounds, messed up my back, both my elbows and my thumbs, but I finished it, you know, and I, and a lot of times in marketing, in marketing, I think it takes that type of tenacity and I have proven my tenacity to help somebody get through the real estate transactions, large real estate transactions to small real estate transactions, because you're dealing with a lot of pitfalls and a lot of trees in the way, which I hit. Uh, so it's, um, you know, it's, it, it's an interesting uh, sport. Everybody thinks you're riding the back of the sled, but no, you're running up the hills, hanging on for dear life down the hills. And when you're on the river, you're actually – uh, pedaling or pushing or uh, using ski poles to assist the dogs. And you're running um, 12 out of 24 hours, and the other 12 hours, you know, six and six that you're taking off, you're cooking, cleaning, bootying, unbooting, taking care of your puppies. And, uh, you know, later on, those puppies 
they all retired with me. Uh, of course, Fisher King, for those that uh, haven't, don't know, uh, we were able to do a great project with the city of Kennesaw and the busiest city park in Alaska, which is, or I'm sorry, in Georgia, which is Swift Cantrell Park over in Kennesaw. There's a mile-and-a-half trail there named after Fisher King, my lead dog, and there are seven National Park Service-style signs in there that are really character Edwards, but to me, they're words like perseverance and, and character and guidance. Those are the things that middle schoolers, high schoolers really need to key on. You know, one of the signs talks about my dogs that are not purebred dogs. They're Alaskan Huskies, Brian, and these Alaskan Huskies are nothing more than mixed breed mutts. We don't care what they look like on the outside. We care more about their heart and soul and how they care about their teammates and how they care about me and what they do. And to me, that's a lot the way kids in school should be picking their friends, not what they wear, but how they treat them and what they do. So that's one of the things that, that we bring forward. So if you haven't had a chance, definitely go to Swift Cantrell Park, walk the mile and a half trail, read the signs. It's a, it's a great sign. A lot of the school teachers using it for uh, extracurricular uh, makeup work. A lot of the homeschoolers are using it for lesson plans. Um, I know you were going to ask me about the nonprofit, but I'm just going to jump into that. <laughs> Uh, you know, Cool Dreams, uh, our 501c3, uh, we started that back in 2002, and now we're probably close to a million school kids that we've talked to about, you know, all these schools at one point in time, I think there's, I heard there were over 4,000 schools nationwide using the teaching curriculum. Well, they use the teaching curriculum to teach math, simple, whether it be elementary school, middle school, high school. How many booties does it take to booty a dog? How many booties does it take to booty a dog with 16 dogs? How many booties does it take to booty a 16-dog team for a 1,000-mile race, changing booties every 80 miles? Uh, Math equivalent, for instance. But then we would go in and talk to the children and talk to the schools about, through proper planning, perseverance, and faith in God's anything's possible. If you ever get a chance to come hear one of my hour-long speeches, it'll tell you how God played a huge, huge part in my run and my finishing. Uh, and that's what we take to those children. And I have teachers come up all the time and say, I can't talk about that in school. We're so glad you did. Um, I remember talking to a North Carolina school a few years ago, and it was a it was an elementary and middle school campus. And a lot of times when I would go in and talk to the the whole campus, we do one in the morning and one in the afternoon. Well, if we're doing a morning class, you know, we do orange juice and donuts with some of them just so they can ask questions, you know, the A students or whatever. And afternoon, we do pizza and Coke so they select group can ask questions. Well, the interesting thing in the, that one was they didn't use grades to do it. They actually had a drawing. And just for lack of whatever his name was, little Johnny, Little Johnny was constantly in the principal's office and had C's and D's and flunking. And the teacher and the principal told me, says, ever since we drew his name, knowing he would lose the ability to sit down and have donuts and orange juice with you, he's been on his best behavior. So I let him hold one of the dogs when we did give the speech and everything was going along great. A couple of years ago, I sat down at the Hiawassee Music Park, and right in front of me was that principal. She turned around and saw me, and I knew I was doing something then. Because when she turned around and saw me, she said hi and some pleasantries exchanged, and she 
said, you remember that young man, little Johnny? Yeah. He says, well, he's in high school now. He's A and B student. We never had a bit more trouble out of him. You changed that kid's life. And to me, if I just did that one person, mm-hmm. that made my day. Awesome. Well, you, you talked a lot there. Some of the questions I was going to ask, but I'm going to ask them anyway. Okay. Uh, so You might take, get a different answer. Uh, right? Well, I okay. hope so. I hope right. so. Take us a little bit through the training for the Iditarod. Uh, training for the Iditarod is, is very interesting because – you're training the dogs and in doing so you're also training yourself uh you know typical training year starts out of course i trained for three years for it because i had to run qualifiers Uh, by the time i stepped my feet on the sled at the start of the iditarod i kept everything on a spreadsheet so i knew which dog ran with who how long they had run but i had been on the back of a sled behind a dog team for over ten thousand miles uh actually running dogs and uh so you'll start and it's changed over the years, but typically back then we would start in, we give the dogs the summer off and now they send them to the glaciers to try to get some running in. But we would actually start in September uh, with weight training. And you have to realize how strong these dogs are. You'd hook up four to six dogs and run starting out in a mile or two a piece and working your way up to 10 miles over the course of the next couple of months not on a sled, but actually tied to a harness to a four-wheeler wow. and a big four-wheeler. And if when you got off that four-wheeler, you had to not only set both the brakes, but you had to make sure the handlebar was actually tied in a straight position because they would drag it uh, if they didn't, if you didn't pay attention to them. The four-wheeler itself, though, typically we found old four-wheelers because – we would train them depending on uphill, downhill, and stuff. If they're going downhill or level toward the end of the training, it is in gear with the motor off. So they're dragging it in gear with the motor off because they are very, very powerful. At one point in time, I got my truck and 10,000-pound uh, trailer stuck off the side of the road. Had my team and my son's team. My son ran the junior did a rod that year for uh, 14 to 17-year-olds. And we had about 40 dogs with us. So we just hooked up the dogs, put the gang lines together, and put the dogs out in front of the truck, put it in neutral. Didn't even have to give it any gas. Just, all righty, let's go, guys. And they pulled the truck and trailer right out of the ditch. Not a problem. Uh, So the power is there. Um, So when we're training, we're training them weight. Well, by the time the snow is on and there's enough snow to switch from sleds, it's time to go to cardiovascular. So then we hook up 10, 12, 14 dogs, depending on what you can run that day. And we start running the dogs um, through the start of the qualifying races and through the start of the training races. Uh, But we start running those dogs 10, 12, 15 miles. And by the time we start running the big races, we're up to 100, 110-mile runs a day. Uh, These 100, 110-mile runs a day, you know, that's going to take – on the average of 10 to 12 miles an hour, it's going to take all day. A lot of times you run out, camp, run back, uh, running that team two times a day. Thank God I had my son because he he was my kennel handler for me. So we would hook up a lot of times the 24 dogs I was training, and we would tag sled, uh, meaning he would be behind me on another sled, and we would be we'd fill the um, – sleds with dog food and concrete blocks and weight them down 
and then we would take all 24 dogs on a run and that was like a freight train and that's just a suggestion when you want to stop <laughs> so it uh it's all verbal commands there's you know you see the movies and stuff there's no whips there's no reins or anything like that everything is uh g and haw like the old mules in western days a uh, lot like uh, one of my trainers from Spain and one of my trainers both finished the Iditarod from uh, California. Also, both horse people. I was raised with horses. Dogs are a lot like horses, believe it or not, only they're a little bit smarter. Um, so they're all voice commands with it, and we're able to control them, get them to stop, get them to slow down. Although they are mischievous. Uh, had one dog every time we started to make a turn, she'd just look over her shoulder at me and kind of I, I, I could just hear her telling the rest of the dogs here's a turn let's see if we can throw him off and take off speed up <laughs> whip him off at the end because that sled's moving around that turn and there's no steering wheels on that thing so it's not skiing but the training once you get to that when you get to the actual start of the big race you've already run uh three or four three four hundred mile races and uh then you've already uh, done all your training runs as well is there anybody else i think when you and i first met you were the only guy from georgia to not only compete but finish is there anybody else from georgia to do that there is there is another young man um his dad lives in alaska so he was working as a handler interestingly enough uh, sean uh sean has attempted the race uh twice he finished once uh, sadly the um the race was the covid route so he didn't get to go to Nome, which I keep telling him, Sean, you need to go do it again and go to Nome. But he got he had to go out, turn around, and come back. So it was the 800-mile loop uh, for the COVID. And uh, I'm encouraging Sean to do it again. I have a lot of fun out of Sean because I love his mom to death. She ran up, and we were there to watch him uh, finish the race and everything. But uh, his mom lives over in Tucker, uh, great people. And uh, Sean, a lot younger than I was when I finished the race, and uh, he, um, I, I love to tell Sean that I said, Sean, you know, there's a reason they put my name on the city limit signs and said first finisher from Georgia because <laughs> uh, you're second. But that's okay, Sean. Keep trying. <laughs> you talked about your nonprofit; it's called Cool Dreams, correct? Correct, Cool Dreams. Is there a way for people to help support that, and how? If so how? There is. Uh, interestingly enough, and uh, I have a lot, have some fun out of Ike Riker at most ministries with it. You know, the you have to look at nonprofits, and you have to say with these nonprofits, you know, how much money actually goes to help the people. And uh, you know, you can look at GuideStar and a lot of the nonprofit registrations, and you'll see that a really good number going to them is seventy-five, eighty percent. Uh, where you get some of the one, the larger ones like United Way, they're way down there because of all the administration expense. Uh, cool Dreams actually has always been 100%. All the administration, all the um, all the things it costs to run Cool Dreams uh, is actually, I pay that. I, I've been blessed. I have a good real estate company. High Caliber takes care of me. Everything's good. So it's... Um, 100% of every donated penny goes back to Cool Dreams to help us get into the schools, to help us get to the schools, to help us give the speeches, to help us with the teaching curriculum, to help us tell these uh, children that through proper planning, perseverance, and faith, anything is possible. And if you want to see an example of that, definitely go up to Swift Cantrell. 
park right behind Kennesaw Elementary there in the 40-acre park and uh, walk the trail and read the signs. What the dogs that you've raced with and race you, what do you do with them when they're retired? Well, interestingly enough, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to go back many, many years. I'm going to go back to 1925 when Balto and Togo finished the race and they're li- they were livestock back then. Um, and Leonard Seppler ended up selling, um, the dogs to a production company in Santa Monica. A lot of those dogs ended up on the Santa Monica Pier, and it was very hot, and some of them died until the children of Cincinnati got together and did a Pennies for Balto fundraiser uh, back in the late 20s. And Balto and his teammates lived out their life in the Cincinnati Zoo. A lot of us take, a lot of the mushers take the, the fact that our dogs are not just livestock. They're our babies. They're our puppies. Um, now these dogs are taken care of, and they tra- old dogs train new dogs. Uh, they train them how to run, who to run next to. They train leaders. Um, my dogs, actually, as they retired, all came home with me. Fisher King, when he finished the race with me, he had already run the race six times, uh, once with Colonel Vaughn uh, when Colonel did his last run. Fisher King was 11 years old when he ran the race, wow. and he was what was known as a smart leader. He could follow my commands. He knew the way. He could follow sense. He could follow markers. He was a very smart dog. He was 11 years old. He was my ace in the hole. I would have carried him if I had to to finish the race. But at 11 years old, he finished an 1,151-mile race in lead all but about 10 miles when he was misbehaving, and he had mm-hmm. to run in the pack, but he learned so we had a little bit of a talk there. But Fisher and Lookout and Tonto and all of them came to live with me in Kennesaw. At uh, one point in time, I was over my limit in Kennesaw, so a couple of the dogs were made official citizens of Kennesaw, so they didn't qualify as animals, uh, thanks to the, the city commissioner or city council at the time. And these dogs would go with me to the speeches. And I always found it interesting, especially when I took Fisher. Because if I was giving a speech maybe at a, uh, a senior home and I was talking to them about it and I would very simply say, okay, let's see a show of hands because we all know seven years in a dog's life, that type of thing. Let me see a show of hands. Everybody in here that's 77 years of age or younger. And I'd get a few of them hold up. I said, well, let's meet Fisher King. At 77 years in human ages, he ran 1,151 miles. Are you guys ready to do that? And that always got a, a big laugh with it because Fisher was a sweetheart, but they are my babies, and I, that is why I will probably never own another dog because those 16 dogs that I started that race with all retired with me. They all they did, they did kept running with my friends and folks in Alaska that, that I knew, and some did recreational, but when they retired, they came with me, and they slowly passed away over the years. Tonto was the last to go. They were very well taken care of. They were not couch potatoes. Uh, a lot of dogs only live to be 10, 11, 12 years old. These dogs live, all my dogs, except for Lookout, who had cancer, um, all of my dogs live to be 17, 18, 19 years old, large dogs. And even Lookout lived to be 11. So it's uh, they're my babies. So if anybody's listening to you, well, first of all, let me ask this question. Of the, of the three that you shared, 
from the motorcycle to the rodeo and the Iditarod, which one was your favorite? Have to be the Iditarod. Have to be the Iditarod. Um, you know, the the Iditarod kind of combined them all. Uh, you know, team roping, working with the horses. Uh, yeah, that took skill. Motorcycling definitely takes skill. But as my guest here with me will tell you, you you break bones with that. Of course, you break bones in the Iditarod too. But uh, to actually take a dog team, God's power, kind of like sailing instead of a speedboat, to take God's power, and all you can hear is that little t t t of their of their running, and to go out to go where most people have never gone before to see the backside of Denali, to be out under the northern lights, and to pit man and animal against nature, and and traverse the wilds of Alaska at sixty below, to me was the ultimate life experience. And people always say, what was the hardest? I'm like, you know, it's 90% mental. Uh, four or 500 miles in the race, you're going, my God, what am I doing? I'm, I'm dying. I'm killing myself. And literally by the end of the race, because most people don't even finish on their first attempt like I did. I finished on my first attempt. But when I got, when I saw the last 40 miles of the race is actually on a snow-covered, probably 12, 14 feet deep road. Um, I got outside of safety, the last checkpoint, and I'm on my way into Nome. And I see a road sign sticking up out of the snow that says, Nome, 20 miles. I stopped the team. I didn't want it to be over. I know it was a race, but I stopped the team. I bed the team. We, we sat there, and I talked to my dogs, and I laid down with them, and I snuggled them, and you know, and I just, I'm like, this, this was awesome guys. Let's go finish it. That's cool. Pun intended. Um, <laughs> if somebody is listening to you, uh, what advice would you give them about following their dreams? Definitely. You know, we, you have one life and it's a blank page. God's given you a lot of coloring crowns, color it the way you want to color it. So many people, especially in my professional career, I see, they work for 20, 30, 40 years, and they retire. You know, it's where the 30-year mortgage came from, the Detroit, Michigan. All the kids saved money till they were 28, 29, got a mortgage, paid it off, retired three years later at 62, 63, sit on the front porch, watch the whistle blow, and look at their goal watch. We're not like that anymore, and we shouldn't be like that. You know, there's a reason that our ancestors followed their dreams and explored the country and did what they were supposed to do. You know, I'm up to 106 countries now that I've been to. I go and I, I, I learn about other cultures. I see other things. And if you're doing nothing but going to work and saving for retirement, I got some news for you. Retirement may not come. You may kick the bucket before you get there. You better live life now. Spend all that money. You know, interestingly enough, um, one of the things I said earlier on with helping people build their portfolios in real estate. I got a call from my wife who was just blessed and she was so taking care of everything while I was training for the race and race is the first Saturday of March every year about February. I get this call, honey, uh, guys aren't doing anything at the office and we're out of money. Like, well, I got a race to run cash out my retirement. I'm 42 years old. Cash it out. Are you, okay? you sure? Yep. Cash it out. Finish the race. Went back. We were out of liquid cash. But I had bought houses, rental houses, businesses, and offices. We get back. They had done one. That was at the mortgage company. They had done one loan since from January to April. 
We get back in town, fired them all, hired a lady that I'd worked with years earlier in the appraisal at First Atlantic Private Banking, found another guy that's great guy, Clint. Now, you know, he's, he's a preacher now, but he also does mortgages still. Julie, Clint, and I took that mortgage company from April that had done one loan to December and we were the 20th largest in the state, according to the Atlanta Business Chronicle. So, uh-huh. see, I did what God wanted me to do, and he took care of my business. And we did what we were supposed to do. And I very simply, when I got back, told Julie, I said, refinance those two rental houses. Pulled a bunch of cash out, tax-free because it was a loan. Put it back in the bank. We're cash flush again. You know, interestingly enough, I never missed refinancing because the tenants in the house paid them down again. And the houses kept appreciating so work to live, don't live to work. And so many people do that. Follow your dreams. Have a dream. If you want to paint, if you want to be an artist, if you want to travel, if whatever you want to do, go do it. People say, when did you retire, Bill? I retired when I was 28 because I realized it and I started doing what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it. It's that simple. So if somebody wants to get a hold of you either for cool dreams, you also go do speaking for speaking, for your auctioneer, for high caliber realty, any of that, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Best way to get a hold of me is an email to Bill, B I L L at highcaliberrealty.com. Highcaliberrealty.com. There's all the information's on there about cool dreams. There's links to all the websites and everything. So highcaliberrealty.com will get you. Awesome, Bill. Well, thanks for sharing a little bit of your story. You mind sticking around to hearing this next one? Love to. Looking forward to it. And Brian, thanks for having me. Yeah. So what we didn't talk about were these first two gentlemen on their endeavors face some critters. John, you talked about facing an alligator on a race. Bill, you've talked and encountering some moose on your races. This next gentleman encounters critters all the time. So Mr. Tim Farr, thanks for being here this morning. Tim is a professional uh, rodeo Writer, so again, thanks for being here this morning, Tim. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, you and I met a few years ago. Um, I'm always again into the sports world and love uh, athletes who give back to the community. You've come to some fundraising events that I've done, and uh, you just have a special heart for that as well. But first of all, share their story and how you got involved in the rodeo. My mom and dad, um, I always loved this line. My mom lived on a dirt floor. And her and dad met in high school. They married immediately after and tried to make it. And they always had a love for horses. And my dad bought his first one for $200 (laughs) with a roll of quarters. And they put it in a stall. And the horse kicked the door off of the stall because they didn't realize that they had to water it. Wow. And the neighbor caught him drinking out of their pool. (laughs) So they brought him back. And that's how we started. So, and who can't be romantic about a cowboy life? So we started with horses and we, we started with a few mares. Um, I literally grew up on one. So beyond that, we, we started, we had a stud, we started standing a stud and breeding a few mares and I started riding horses for the public. Um, so that's kind of the beginning. So my favorite genre of movies is Westerns. I always thought I would like to be a cowboy, but just knowing you, there's probably things that I would not be able to do. Um, but so your, your, I guess, um, rodeo, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? 
aspect of it is you are a roper. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, have you done the bulls? I have. Yeah. Which do you prefer? <laughs> <laughs> we talking longevity or <laughs> adrenaline <laughs> adrenaline is definitely the bulls longevity is definitely roping um take walk us through the, the way you because i'm sure you have to train special ways too uh for any aspect of the rodeo but take us through your training uh as these other guys you live in the gym um you can you can work out and you can stay in the gym and you can be fit but there's roping and riding fitness as well and there's no replacement for doing the event so the gym always helps, um, but stretching and being able to flex and ride is a whole different, whole different venue. Um, you've done this well, internationally, nationally. Inter- uh, <laughs> I haven't left the country doing it. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, which would you, if if you're on a circuit, I guess is what they call it. What's uh, what circuit do you? Uh, the PRCA. Um, that's what I did whenever I started. Um, 42 different states and three Canadian provinces. Okay. So started there and all across America and Canada. Um, of course, now we've localized. So you said you're semi-retired. Um, so what now you're, you're, you're training the next generation. <laughs> um, I am loosely said <laughs> that's, that's scary because um, you have to be right. Um, what, uh, so, so you, you and I talked about one thing you'd like to do is just sharing, you shared a little bit of your story, but you have a testimony that you, uh, you like to talk about. So do you mind sharing that? No, not at all. Um, which we rodeoed and my family and I, we had, we had a really cool dynamic because my mom and dad, they made carpet. Everybody wanted to be cowboys. So we started a cowboy life and again, who can't be romantic about the cowboy life and rodeo. So we started rodeoing and my brother, the first year we started rodeo, and he made he made the national finals, which is which is the Super Bowl of rodeo. That's what everybody that's what everybody strives to be for. Um, and we were gaining, gaining, and we were get um, we're learning about the sport, learning about rodeo. And in two thousand and three, we were set up. We were set up as perfectly as we could be set, and we had to ride horses. Which is as you talk about your dogs, uh, the horses are your family. And, and when you find the, the certain dynamic with a certain one, you can't do wrong with them. And, and they provide, they, they give you their life. And, it, and it's the same. So you take care of them like their family. So I had, I had that dynamic. My brother had that dynamic. We had our certain horses. And we were in between rodeos. And we hit a mule deer while we were traveling. And it rolled the rig. And the horses flew out of the trailer. They were still alive. But they were running down the road. And... As we come to find out, the lady that hit him um, was coming back from cancer treatment. So she hit all of her horses and killed all the horses and killed her. So it, it was a it was a tragic tale. So the rest of O three is trying to <laughs> pull the pieces back together because everything that we had worked for crumbled. Truck and trailer gone, horses gone. Um, I had a pair of shorts. When I walked away, walked away the trailer, the trailer we lived that that we have, they're campers and you haul horses in them. So we lived in our trailer, but we we're going 250 days of the year. So we lived in that trailer. So I had nothing. I mean, nothing. I had a pair of shorts. So we pull together whatever we have left. We come home, we lick our wounds, and we try again. 
which was turning back. You never know it's a mistake until you turn get a, get ahead of it and turn back and look. So at the end of that, we should have stayed home, but we didn't. We pursued, and as it turns out, it was good for me because I, I did terrible the rest of the year. So there's the preacher that goes around and he feeds everybody, and, it, and and it's a neat deal. And he had on his on his wall, he had Jesus riding a horse with with all the all the people, and he's coming to gather. And being from the Bible Belt, you always know it. it. It's a part of life, but until you experience it, you don't really know it. So I'm looking at this picture, and I'm asking the preacher, and you know, at this point, I'm rock bottom. I have nothing. So. I start reading, and I did it completely backwards because I started reading in Revelations, which is mean anybody's read, and that's the hardest book to read. So I read Revelations, and it literally turns my life around. So after reading Revelations and talking to the preacher, then I begin my quest, and I say, okay, I'm going to read. I'm going to read the Bible. I don't care how long it takes me, but I'm going to read it, and it may just be a chapter a day, but I finish it. And and the following years behind that, the next year was was the most success I had experienced ever. So, of course, who who can't who can't follow that? How, how do you, how do you put that down? What um, I guess you said it changed your life. So what you you like to share that story? You wanted to yeah, you and I have talked about possibly going and speaking like FCA and some of those groups, mm-hmm. but. Um, what are you doing now as far as you said you're semi-retired, but I know you've got a, your place is just north of Calhoun. That's right. You have a little arena there yourself. So you mm-hmm. do, uh, I guess, do you do any shows there as well? or We do. What, what kind of things are you doing now that you're semi-retired? Um, I've been a farrier my whole life, but I haven't done it for the public. And that, that's what I'm trying to do now to replace the the money that I was making rodeo on. Um, but people still come and rope and I still go do schools and try to teach people to rope. And, and, you know, it's a class, it's a weekend class where people bring their horses and I teach them to rope. You, um, I mentioned you guys, you come to do some, some fundraising events that I've done. You know, this is a interesting pairing. I would never consider a rodeo guy being a good golfer. <laughs> Tim is an amazing golfer, and I haven't figured out how that worked out being a rodeo guy and being a golfer. But we you know appreciate everything you've come to do for us. Mm, thank you. Um, what if if so? Somebody who may not know what a farrier is. What is that? Oh, that's a blacksmith. You you put metal on a horse's feet. So you're just shoeing them all the time. I that's guess. right. That's right. You put shoes on them. Um, Every six weeks, um, horses grow a certain amount of feet in the wild. Uh, they break them off. They're meant to travel 17 miles a day. And, of course, when we stall them up and put them in lots, their feet grow faster. So um, you try to take care of them. So I'm curious the history of the shoe because, obviously, when God made horses, the shoes weren't around. Huh? No, not at all. So when they started using them in wars, um, their feet would break off and they would get sore. So they figured we're going to put some metal on their feet. And they can hit the ground way harder with metal. When you are talking about doing the ferrying and you're wanting to do that for, uh, you know, as, as a career now, I guess, uh, will you travel or are you just sticking to your area where you're at? Or? Um, yeah, you, you'll have to travel some. Um, I'm still trying to trying to gain some clients, so I'm traveling a little further than I need to. But ideally, uh, you know, you're 10 or 15 minutes from the house, but that's not the case for me. Well, yet. where you're at, there's a lot of, there's all kinds of farms up there. So it's just getting right. your name out there. We need to help you do that. So, right. um, if, 
somebody listened to you and you wanted to follow their dreams, what would you tell them? Oh, the same as these other guys. Take a step at a time. Fail miserably. Fail a lot. Take chances. So I like to ask this question. Um, I didn't ask you individually. I've got two other questions uh, before we wrap this up that I wanted to ask each of you. So uh, the first one, and John, I'll let you start, is um, why is it important to be involved in the community? Because you're involved in the community as well. Because everything that you do within the community comes back to you. Um, you know, um, you know, my relationship with stone, right. I mean, that's, you know, like I have known stone for a lot of years, but, um, you know, I ran into him at a, at a business at, uh, one of the business associations and, you know, he's become a, both, you know, a sponsor for, for the race team, but then also like, you know, we've traded business back and forth. Um, you know, it's always important to be involved in the place you live because it just comes back to you. Um, and the more you give out, the more it comes back. Bill. Well, I'm, I'm going to agree with John. You know, it's uh, it's all about the community. You, A lot of people sit around and complain about the community, their state, their government, their country, but it's all up to them. If, uh, if you don't get out there and you work at it and you help the community be better, it all starts in the community. And if you can help it be better, if you can help other people get more business, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled to death to hear about your fairing business. I mean, that that's a lost art. And so many people look for good farriers. It's, it's amazing. I'm, I mean, I'm definitely going to spread the word there, just helping here. And what you're doing here, Brian, putting the three of us together, uh, you know, that's important because I'll have business for John. I'll have business for Stone. Uh, Brian and I, you know, we've known each other probably 20 years now. And, you know, he's a great guy bringing people together. And he does that net weaving that I was talking about. You do that. Um, so I'm glad to hear. And, you know, before you asked your last question, I just, you know, rodeoing on the horseback and golf, as soon as you take up polo, I want to know about it because I'm putting money on you. <laughs> yeah, I did forget to mention, too, that Bill Bill does a lot, too. So I brought Bill to a Toys for Tots event and had people, he was signing autographs and everything, and people learned about the Iditarod. And I, everybody's, they flocked to him because they think he's so cool. So, Tim, why is it important for you to be part of the community? Oh, I'm going to regurgitate. Um, whatever you get, whatever you put out comes back. So the, the universe um, reflects what you give. All right. So last question I'll ask before I do that. If somebody wants to get a hold of you, first of all, about your farrier business. Uh, and then is there people, can they still see you do any rodeo? And if they can, how can they do all that? How can they get a hold of you for your business? And can they see you ride? Uh, the best way is, is through my Facebook. Um, it, it's just me. So uh, my brother moved off, my mom passed, my dad is semi-retired, so it's just me. Um, Spell your name because it's not very Yeah, I know, P-H-A-R-R. They always mess it up. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so last question I have for you. You guys have all shared uh, some nuggets about following your dreams, but I always ask this at the end of the show. um, Share something that's a nugget, a quote, a word to live the rest of 2023 and beyond with. So, John, go ahead and start. No. <laughs> well, that's easy. <laughs> you know, it, it's, you know, it, it's really, it's go out there and do it. You know, something that, you know, Bill said is you only live once and you can, you know, you can live to work or you can work to live. And there's no, there's no upside in living to work. 
You know, you, you get up, you, you do your commute, you do your eight to five, you come home, you eat dinner, you go to bed and then eventually you die. And that's a drag. Um, you know, like a lot of the reason why the people in this room, like we had some great conversations kind of prior to the show. And a lot of the reason that happened is because we've all had some lived experience. Um, if you haven't created a lived experience for yourself, go do it. Um, and, and do whatever it takes to make it happen. Um, you know, sometimes doing the things that like, that, like we were all talking, like none of what we do is easy. Um, and it takes some effort. So put that effort out. It's worth doing. Exactly. Bill. Well, you know, of course, I've already told you, life's a blank page. You know, use the coloring book, color it, fill it up. What he was talking about, you know, don't live to work, work to live. But the biggest thing I think I can say and very simply sum it up is look at any tombstone. There's the date of birth and date of death. The date of death, live the dash. The dash is all you got and have fun with it. Tim? Mm. There's, there's many, uh, as we have all experienced, the catalysts that changed our lives and the quotes that go through us. It changes with every phase. Um, but the best thing I've ever done and what I would try to leave somebody with is write things down where you can see them every day. If you have a goal, put it on a board, put it at the door where you see it every day. Awesome. Well, guys, again, I appreciate you being here, sharing your story. Stone, Brian, what do you think? Brian, now before you yeah. finish up now, so give us your quote. I do when I when I show you. You'll hear it in a second. <laughs> you'll, you'll hear it in a second. Is that your right? Well, I'm wearing a T-shirt that I got from a guest when we did the on-site broadcast at one of your events, and it says, don't let fear stop you. Do it scared. So go. that's Love mine for you. today. So I just want to know, you know, here in these three stories, which one of these you want to take up? I would like to go see all of them, <laughs> and I don't mind joining the best ball tournament. But, but beyond that, I don't know that I want to actually participate. But I'd love yes. to pet a dog. I love being out at John's race, and I would. And my wife is just horse crazy, so we'd love to come out sometime. Awesome! So everybody there listening, let's remember: let's be positive, let's be charitable. <laughs>